Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you again. Great song that we just sang together, and it prompts us to pray. So let us do that. Father, we have declared to you that you are who you have said you are. You are God, existing in three persons. For you are high and holy and lifted up far above the heavens and the earth. You're the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and all that is in it. And all the gods of the people are idols. But you, O Lord, have made all things and all bows to you. So, Lord, we approach you properly this morning with faith, but also in fear. Fearing you properly, taking you seriously, that you are a good God who loves us and you draw us. We pray that we would be trained by your word this morning. We believe these things, but also the demons believe and tremble. But you said you honor those who are humble and tremble at your word. And I believe that as we have sung this song, that the enemy has fled. And so we pray, Lord God, for the free flow of your spirit this morning to teach us and to prepare us for why we are here as a church. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why are we here? What is it we're trying to achieve? What is our goal? Um, There are lots of organizations, businesses, sports teams. They have purpose statements and goal of what they believe. I'm I'm not a businessman, but I think uh, I've read leadership books over the years, and and I've also been a, a customer for many years in businesses, and I think I recognize what a good business is. And uh, there's some pretty simple things. And so those of you people out there who are business owners, don't, you know, slay me for the things I'm going to say. But um, what's the number one purpose of a business? It's to make money. Yeah. You you, you go in and they say, you know, our vision is to serve our customer. Okay. Yeah. But (laughs) of course it is to serve their customer. But number one is to make money because if you don't make money, you don't exist. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay for a business to make money. But then how do you make money as a business that is successful and and doing things the right way? That's where you provide the service or the goods that are quality and you provide for your customers. You take care of your customers. I think one of the things that many businesses leave out that I notice just walking in is they have this idea of taking care of their customers, but they don't take care of their employees to take care of their customers. And so they miss the picture, they miss it, and they might have a plaque on the wall that says what they're all about, but it's easy for a business, a church, any organization to lose its sense of purpose. And I know you've been in places like that. I've walked into a business, and there's a person at the counter, and they're sitting there, and maybe they're doing business things. Maybe they're catching up on the books, and they're doing the right things, but they don't look up. And you walk around the store and you look around and they, they might have nodded once or twice and pretty soon, what do you do? You shrug your shoulders and somehow that has not been communicated to that person. We're making money by serving our customers, by taking care of our employees. So what about us? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We have a purpose. Something we're trying to achieve is pretty simple. You're going to see it in the text as we read it right now. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 with me. Please turn in your Bibles, whatever form you may have. It's a Bible, if it's a, an iPad or a tablet or a phone, whatever you have. I'd like you to look at God's Word. And would you please uh, stand as we give attention to the public reading of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're reading verses 3 through 7. Give attention to God's word, please. And Paul says to Timothy, As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention 
to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, as we saw last week, Paul has sent Timothy to protect the church, to confront false teaching, and to help them to understand how we're to live in the household of God. And he gets right down to business very quickly in, in the book. In fact, verse 3 is pretty much the, the, the purpose of the book, why he is written. And he instructs him, but he instructs us as well. And so how we're instructed is this way, that just like Timothy, we are to prohibit the spread of unbiblical teaching. Paul is very insistent about this, to prohibit the spread of unbiblical teaching. It's important. It, it, he, he highlights how important it is with his very language that he urges him to command these people to not do these things because it is dangerous. And it pulls people away from the truth. He says in verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. Now just pause for a minute there to talk a little bit about some of the background. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, probably as long or longer than any other place. Imagine that. Three years training the people in Ephesus. This is where Timothy is now. And it's hard to know exactly when this takes place, First and Second Timothy and Titus. But scholars believe it happens after the book of Acts. If you remember, Acts ends with Paul in Roman prison. And then, subsequent to that, he is let out. And then he is imprisoned again after some time. We're not sure exactly how long. Because we know Second Timothy, Paul says that he is in prison again. And we know that after this short time in prison, he's going to be beheaded. So again, this is at the end of Paul's lifestyle, but, lifetime, but we don't know exactly when this happened. He spent a lot of time in Ephesus teaching them. And sometime in the intervening period to when he, where he is now, problems rose up in the church. Teachings arose. On his third missionary journey, Paul was traveling on his way back to Jerusalem, and he wanted to meet with the, the elders of Ephesus. And so he sent word to them, and he said, Meet me in, in Miletus, and I'm going to, I have a message for you. And so these men were, were really, really important to the Apostle Paul. And this is what he says to them in, in Ephesians, excuse me, in Acts chapter 20. Listen to this. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church of Ephesus. And when they had come to him, he said to them, Now note his heart and his love and his affection for these men. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which come upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from de declaring to you anything that was, not profit that was profitable, excuse me, in teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, on my, on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. 
Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose, the whole counsel of God. And here it comes. Listen carefully. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. And he closes out this way. It says, when he had said all these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul, repeatedly kissing him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied to his ship. He said, I'm never going to see you again. But he gave them this warning as a prophecy. The elders of the church from among you, men are going to rise up. And I'm sure they're looking at each other. It's kind of like the whole Judas thing, you know. Was it me? Who is it? And that is exactly what happened. That is why Timothy is in Ephesus. And that is what our book is all about. That just what Paul predicted would happen, has happened. And so he had sent Timothy there with instruction, and now he writes a letter to him to reinforce that instruction. Remember, Timothy was young. Timothy was timid. Timothy was sickly. And Paul knew that he needed undergirding, and he needed encouraging. That's why he says, I urged you to remain and that you would instruct. And the word instruct is a very strong word. It's not just teach these men, but it is a word, it's a military term, and it's a judicial term that really carries the force of command them. Stop this. Prohibit this. Do not permit these men to teach what he calls strange doctrines. When he says, by the way, Certain men do not teach certain men. Timothy knew who they were. Paul knew their names. He had already excommunicated Alexander and Hymenaeus. He called them by name. There are others amongst the elders, and Paul knows who they are. Timothy knows who they are. The church knows who they are. And these certain men are to be commanded not to teach strange doctrines. That is a very interesting phrase, teach strange doctrines in our English. It's one word in the original, which means other doctrines, other teaching. It means other of a different kind. They had been given the apostolic faith, the teachings of Jesus, to the teachings of the apostle, to the teaching of the the elders in the churches, to the teachings that went out all to the churches, a standardized body of truth the doctrine of the Christian faith, the faith once delivered, and anything other than that, different from that, he says, it's wrong. They shouldn't be teaching something other than what we have received. And Timothy needs this encouragement to tell these guys to stop teaching other things that are not true. That's the first thing. Command them to stop that. The second is command them to not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. The word pay attention is a word that he will use later when he talks about deacons, when he says deacons are not to be addicted to much wine. It doesn't mean you can be addicted to a little wine, but anyway, we'll get to that when we get there. But, but it's the word that means to be, uh, be, to be ruled by this. These men have been pulled aside, and they were addicted to these things. They were captured by this false teaching, myths. What is a myth? We know what a myth is. It's a fanciful story. It's a legend. But is it true? 
No, it's not true. Fanciful story that is not true. And so even at this time, there were all of these extra biblical legends and stories that were uh, that were rising. They were interesting. They were colorful, but they weren't true. Myths. Our faith has to be anchored in facts. And if they're teaching myths and teaching them as facts, people will be led astray. And that's exactly what was happening in Ephesus. And Paul is saying, you need to put a stop to this. They're teaching other doctrines, different things of another kind, different from the truth. And they're not even true. They're myths. In endless genealogies, he says. By the way, when he, when, when he mentions genealogies, we'll see this as the whole chapter unfolds. He identifies the nature of this false teaching as Jewish in nature. Because it has to do with the Old Testament and it has to do with genealogies. And because there were so many genealogies in the Old Testament, this actually happened and it's happening today. People would go to these genealogies and they would come up with all these bizarre allegorical interpretations of this person means this. And there's a story about this one guy. He's never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but they take his name out and they attach some story to it. And then people go, oh, that's really cool. That's really interesting. But it's a myth. It's not true think that happens today well you bet it does i you know be careful of this but i i I did a search um hidden meanings in in genealogies you will not believe what you would find just by doing that search crazy crazy things the first thing I, i found was um one of the genealogies in the old testament and they they went through every name and they told what they thought was the meaning of every one of the names. And from that, they constructed a sentence. And, and woohoo, there's a hidden message in this genealogy. Man, now you know what it is. Isn't that great? And people want to look for these hidden messages. And we have the same thing today, fanciful stories about angels and demons and lost books of the bible and ancient aliens and unicorns and people who have died and come back to give us messages you have all of these things are all over the internet books written about them and what do they do they draw us away from the truth because they're other teaching they're strange they're different they're not they're different of a uh, uh, not of the same kind they might be interesting they might be ki- uh, colorful, but they're not true. And we need to be wary of these kinds of things because they are everywhere. And there might be some of you that have been captured and you're addicted to, to looking up these things. And I have people send me stuff all the time about different things. And, and, and people can just become so taken with that instead of studying the truth. And we must be careful. And why? Because he says... Um, they give rise to mere speculation. They're not true, but hey, you know, what if this were to happen? Yeah, you know, read, read this story in the Bible. What if behind the scenes there was this? And it's conjecture. It's interesting to think about. It's interesting to talk about, but is it revealed? Is it in the Bible? No, it's not. Because it doesn't further God's plan. And that's the, he says it rise, it gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The administration of God, which is by faith, is the plan of the gospel. It's God's plan of his church. It's the mystery of the gospel. He's going to use this word administration, which is stewardship in some of your translations, which I believe is better. The stewardship of God's plan. He has given to Paul the gospel. Paul gave to the church the gospel. It is our responsibility to guard the gospel. And anything that does not advance the plan of the gospel is mere speculation. It's fruitless. That's what he's saying. That's the end of it. It's just fruitless. Myths, genealogies, speculation, different teaching, interesting, colorful, suck you right in. But does it further the plan of the gospel? So we must be careful. Three things, okay? Number one, be be careful of what is new and different. 
said, stop teaching different things. And we need to be aware of when someone says, hey, there's a new this. There's a, there's, we, we, we always want the newest and best, right? You want the, the newest phone. You want the, the newest computer. You want the newest car. It just we're built on that. That's true in theology as well. Oftentimes people come along with a, a new and uh, inventive tr- uh, translation or interpretation of a scripture. We have to recognize that for 2,000 years, the Spirit of God has regulated the truth and protected it. And yes, there are people, there is room for maybe a, a different twist on something, and we can always learn more and more. But we must be careful when someone has something that is new and that is different from the stated truth. People have a penchant for what is new and what is different. And what happens is it, it, it's not added to the gospel. It replaces the gospel. And that's what is happening in Ephesus. Therefore, it's important for us to know the truth. I remember as a new Christian, I was uh, sharing my faith with a lot of Mormons, and I had to study some Mormon theology. But I was warned at that time, you need to study the truth so you can recognize the counterfeit. And the more you study the counterfeit, you might get sucked into it. And so it's important for us to, to study the truth that, 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 is, that has been delivered to us, the doctrine of the faith that has been handed down through generations and millennia. And when we know the truth and someone teaches something different, automatically, right away, we go, nah, sorry, that's false. I know that's false because this is what the truth is. If it does not advance the gospel, avoid it. We have been given a standard by which we are to measure other teaching, different teaching. Number two, beware of what is hidden or secret. You know, how many times that is uh, hidden, the words hidden or secret are in the the name of a book or an article or a um, yeah, online blog or whatever it may be. People have a penchant for secret things things that other people don't know, esoteric knowledge. It's built on pride. It's built on Gnosticism. To ju- if you just know a bunch of stuff that other people don't know, then you're a highfalutin person because I know things that you don't know because I know things that are hidden and hid things that are secret. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, there are secret things. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Yes, there are things that are secret. There are things that he knows that you don't know. There are things he knows that we will never know because we will never fully know the mind of God. And we must be okay with that because we will have tension in this life. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever for the purpose that we may observe the words of the law. God has revealed all that he needs to reveal. He's not hiding anything from us. He's not hiding secret things and hidden things, and you have to find the right teacher on the Internet. And if you just find that teacher, God is not playing a shell game with us. The truth is right out before us. It's for us to see. We see it in nature. We see it in our lives. We see it in the word of God. And he's not hiding things from us. He's not, the truth is not a secret. It's been given to us and we just need to know what it is and to study it so that we know the falsehood when it comes up. Number three, beware of things that are endless and mindless. Endless genealogies, mere speculation, you think of, uh, again, the, the word pay attention can mean don't be addicted to these things. We look at the things in our culture that are endless and mindless. You know what I'm talking about. Whether it's Instagram or X or TikTok or YouTube or Facebook or sports stores. When you're online and you're on a social media and you're following a, th- a thread, where's the end? Where's the end? There is no end, right? <laughs> and are you, are you edified? Do you learn anything? 
that advances the gospel. I'm not saying these things are evil in and of themselves. I'm just saying that if, they, if we become addicted to anything, if something rules us, if all we can ever do is have that phone in our hands, and you, we've all seen the couple at the, um, at the, you know, eating dinner together, maybe it's been you, and they both have their phone in their hands, they're not even talking because they're just doing social media. It's not just kids. It's not just teenagers. Everybody is at risk for this. So just be careful. Things that are mindless, things that are endless, there's no end to it. That's exactly what was happening in the, uh, in the church in Ephesus. It does not fulfill or further the, the, the gospel, so we need to be careful and maybe avoid it. Which brings us to what is the purpose? What are we trying to achieve? And he gives it very clearly in verse 5. A very important verse where we see that we are to pursue the teaching that changes life. Teaching that transforms people. We're to pursue not teaching that is endless and mindless and does not further the gospel. We're not to pursue teaching that is based upon myths and fanciful stories and endless whatever. But the goal of our instruction, he says in verse 5, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So in great contrast to the speculation and the myths and the genealogies, the goal of what we teach, the real goal of it is love in contrast to myths that produce nothing. The word goal is a word we often see in the New Testament, and it means the end. What's the end of our, of our instruction? What's, what's the end game? Uh, what, are, what are we trying to achieve? What is the purpose? What is the conclusion? What is the outcome that we seek when we teach God's word? Um, what is the, what's the goal of a football team, football season? To win a game, right? And how do you win a football game? You score more points than the other team. And how do you score more points than the other team? You have to get across the goal line to the end zone. <laughs> this is the end of it. There's a goal. And the more times you get across that goal and meet that goal, the, the great, greater chance that you will win if you keep the other team from their end goal, which is to win the game as well. And sometimes... Sports teams have a better understanding of the purpose, their purpose, than churches do. It's very simple when you go out to play football on a Sunday if you're pro pro football or on a Saturday if you're on a college team, we're going to win the game. Oftentimes when we come together, it's why are we here? Well, I don't know, fellowship? I don't know. Is it um, singing? Is it teaching? Are we here for teaching? All of those. But there's an end goal of all of them, and it is transformed lives by genuine biblical love. Why does he mention love here? Why doesn't he say discipleship or maturity or something like that? He has that in mind. Remember, he's talking to Timothy, and he doesn't have to explain these things to Timothy because Timothy's his guy. Why love? Matthew 22, 37 through 39, rather through 40. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The purpose of the Old Testament teaching was that people would learn to love God and love others above all else to love God with everything that they have, and to love other people. And then when you do that, you fulfill the law. You don't have to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies and colorful, fanciful stories and mere speculation. No, our goal is love. Our, own, our goal is genuine love, not syrupy, sweet, false love but biblical love that is always other-oriented. Prohibit false teaching, 
On the negative side, on the positive side, further God's plan. What is God's plan? The growth of all of his people in love. Now, he says several things. He says love from a pure heart. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. How does one get a pure heart? Is your heart pure today? I mean, sometimes your heart is pure, sometimes it's not. But a pure heart is one that is cleansed from sin. He's talking about salvation. The result of salvation is that our hearts are cleansed by faith. In Acts chapter 16, verse 8, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, it says, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us, Jew and Gentile. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. You get a clean heart when you come to Christ because you get a new heart. And that new heart is able then to love God from a clean heart. And a good conscience is the second thing. What is is the conscience? It's this inner awareness inside of us that tells us what is right and what is wrong. But it's, be, it's, it's very, we need to be very careful that we don't just let our conscience be our guide because the conscience can be seared. Everyone has a conscience, whether saved or unsaved. And in Romans chapter 2, it says this about unbelievers. And it says that they will be without excuse before God because they know the right thing to do. It says this, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Even a person who doesn't know Christ, when they lie, when they steal, they know it's wrong. It's written in their hearts. The, the problem is, is because they have a propensity to sin, because they are sinners and they have a darkened heart, they will continually violate their conscience over and over and over again until they're not listening to what God has placed in their hearts. In August, two teenagers stole a car in Las Vegas and they filmed themselves driving down a road and they thought it would be fun to run over a guy on a bicycle. And so they saw a guy on a bicycle, and they ran him over and killed him, 64-year-old retired police officer. When they were arrested, the driver of the car showed no remorse. How, how do you kill someone with a car and laugh about it and joke about it, and then when you're caught, say, hey, I'm just going to get a slap on the wrist. It's just hit and run. It's from a culture that continually tells young people and all of us that good is evil and evil is good. Constantly nourished by the world, constantly nourished by our culture that is poison. To get to a point where you have teenagers that that can kill a man and it's, it's just, it's, it's mind-blowing. But when one is born again, your conscience is enlivened. When you're born again, you become a new creation in Christ. The old things passed away. The new things have come. And so your conscience becomes how you judge your thoughts and your actions according to the standard by which you're being trained. And as we renew our mind with the truth of a biblical worldview, as we remind, renew our mind with the truth of God's word, when we think or say or do something where, where we see that the spirit of God tells us that it's right or that it's wrong. But if you adopt a, a worldview of the world, if you are captured by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of the life, those things of the world that are passing away, then your conscience can become seared. So a good conscience comes from salvation and must be fed truth. The goal of our instruction is love, he says, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith is the third thing. 
Sincere faith literally means a faith that was, is without hypocrisy. In other words, it's the real deal. It's faith that is in Christ. It is genuine. It is saving faith. And those are the things that build up this love of, of God and others. Three things. Three things. Number one, what are we trying to achieve here? What are we trying to achieve? What is our mission? It's not to make money. What is our goal? It's not to win ball games. What is our objective? Is it customer service? Why are we here? It's often necessary for us to come back to the drawing board and to remind ourselves of the master's plan. And we can say it in, in these words as we put together all of the New Testament. Our ultimate purpose is to glorify God, to make him known, to give him the credit for all things by obedience to his commands and his commission. His commands are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our mind and our soul. And he said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is the mark of a disciple? Is it what he knows? It's how we love one another and how we live out that love in our lives. So we glorify God by obedience to his commands and his commission to make disciples. That is followers of Jesus Christ who become like him in their love. And in their life. That's what we're all about. People who love the Lord with everything that they have. And their lives show it. Not just words. Not just what they know. Not just what they talk about. But their lives are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second of all. The opposite of love is often legalism. Legalism is a lack of grace. Legalism is is the idea when we we impose rules on people that the Bible does not impose upon them, how they dress, how they wear their hair, what what they put in their ears, whatever it may be, what music they listen to. We'll see more of that in chapter 4. But love love and grace always trumps legalism. And we're going to see more about legalism in the book, but I just want to set the, the tone right up front that oftentimes the opposite of love is legalism. And number three, love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, that's the fruit of salvation. That's what happens when you are regenerate. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And if anyone is in Christ... He or she is a new creation. The old things have passed away and new things have come. You are different. You have a heart and a conscience and a faith that comes from God. And that results in a love that is biblical, that loves God above all things and loves others. So we need to prohibit the spread of unbiblical teaching and pursue the real goal, which is, a love that changes people's lives. And the last thing he says to them and says to us us as well is, pay attention to the lives of false teachers. Pay attention to their character. Pay attention to how their life is going. By their fruit you will know them, the scriptures say, Jesus said. By their lives you will know them. It's not just what they teach. But he's going to say this more and more throughout the book. There's something wrong with these guys. There's an outcome of their lives that is just not right. They're off. Their character's off. Their moral problems. We see it all the time with uh, the, the, the teachers that are out there that are, that are uh, well-known preachers sometimes. And they teach all the fanciful things. And then we hear one day... Yeah, he has been uh, sleeping with his secretary and they took the, the jet that his supporters bought for him and they've flown in the coop, you know. Those kind of things happen all the time. Moral failures amongst leaders. That's why Paul said to the, the elders, watch out for yourselves. 
And he says in verse 6, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't even understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Paul explains that these men have drifted and they swerved from the goal of love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They are hypocrites. Five marks of a false teacher. These are the ones that he includes here. We're going to see throughout the book, he's going to show other characteristics of false teachers. But let's look at the five that he gives us here. Number one, they are unloving. That's because they've strayed from the goal of love. He said some men have strayed from these things. What things? The things that he just said. Love, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. And they have strayed from that. They might be nice, but their love is not genuine. It is not sincere. It is not true. It is self-centered. It has a purpose. These men have strayed, and they do not exhibit the fruit of love that accompanies salvation, and their love is fake. And sometimes that's hard to tell. Second of all, fruitless words. Lots of talk. They love to talk. Did I tell you about this? Let me tell you about that. There's a story in the Bible, but what it means is really this. They like to get people who listen to them because they love to hear themselves talk. And they love the way people go, oh, wow, that is so deep. It's interesting. Wow, I never thought of it that way. And they love to talk. It says they have turned aside to fruitless discussion. They love to talk, but what does it lead to? Nothing. Nothing. It is empty. People love to debate. They love politics. They love to debate points of theology. And you think about all the fruitless talk in our culture. We are prone to just, there's so much information in our culture. We need to be wary of that. Sound bites, tweets, and blogs, and headlines, and podcasts, and sports scores, and all sorts of things. Again, it's okay to look at those things, but those things can pull us away to just talk. Talk, 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 talk. We are just bombarded with information. But it leads to nothing, and that's the point here. He says, they've turned aside to fruitless discussion. Then we see the third aspect or mark is pride. Because he says, wanting to be teachers of the law. They want to be something that they're not. They're self-serving. They have these prideful aspirations. Jesus warned the disciples and the, uh, the, the Pharisees, rather, in, in the New Testament. He said, you guys just love to walk around and get the greetings. And people say, Rabbi, how are you today? And oh, I'm doing well. Love to be called Rabbi. And these guys, these elders, they want to be New Testament rabbis. They want people to give them accolades. And they want to be teachers of the law. But it is self-serving and it is proud. Therefore, we need to watch out. Number four, ignorance. They don't know the truth. They don't know what they're teaching. Because he says, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions, they're just blowing smoke. That's why it's important for us to know the truth so that when we hear these, these fruitless discussions, we immediately recognize They're ignorant. They don't even know what they're talking about. Their words are wrong. And we have to measure them by truth. Ignorance, and number five, is arrogance. Because they make confident assertions. Oh, yes, I'm right and you're wrong. I know things that you don't know. They're dogmatic. And yes, we're dogmatic about certain things. We're dogmatic about the deity of Christ. We're dogmatic about uh, salvation by grace through faith. But they're dogmatic about myths and genealogies and all these things. There's no, yes, it's true. You just don't know. I know more than you know, you know. And they're stubborn and they're inflexible and they are unteachable and they are arrogant. And those are the things that mark a false teacher so far in First Timothy. So what are we trying to achieve? What are we all about? The goal of what we teach is lives that are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We are to know him and we are to love him. It's not just knowledge and it's just not just love. It is a balance between love and knowledge. In fact, the more you know of him and the more truth you know, the more you will love him. But you need to know him more so that you can love him more. And we can only love him more as we know him more. We're coming to the Lord's table at this time. And I want to invite you, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, but I want to focus on one thing as we are singing and the elements are being passed. Jesus said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The mark of our discipleship, the mark of our church, should not be our knowledge. Yes, we need to know things, but ultimately it should be our love for one another and our love for him. He demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you believe that, we invite you to the table. But he also said we are to love one another as a mark of our discipleship. So would you please think of that as the elements are put past and we will partake together. Father, we thank you that we are bought with the precious blood of Christ. This bread and this cup remind us and we declare his death until he returns. And we remember his words. They echo in our, in our ears this morning that we are known by our love for one another. That marks us out as followers of you. We renew our commitment to that purpose, that goal of love from a good heart and a pure conscience and a sincere faith. 
And we thank you that it is all possible through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Would you stand? We're going to sing the last stanza. And we will be dismissed. So let us keep the main thing, the main thing. Have a great week.